this is my ode. This is my way of showing him, if he's watching, that I don't blame him. I don't think he did anything wrong. I think he was stuck in a really messed up world and he had a pretty crappy hand um, handed to him in the way where he was where he was raised, how he was or was not accepted, how he had to get by being the person that he was. And I think he did a pretty good job of it. And the play is my way of setting his soul free. Hey there. And welcome to Creative License, where we dive into what makes creative people successful and immerse ourselves in that process. I'm your host, Alex Perlman. Ari Brand never thought he would become a playwright and didn't expect to see something he created performed on stage to sold-out audiences. In fact, it took a strong push from a good friend and collaborator to even sit down at the keyboard and start typing. Ari realized he had a story to tell one that needed to be shared. A compelling examination of his father, a renowned concert pianist who passed away from AIDS in 1990 when Ari was just six years old. His dad started a family, but lived a secret life. That seed sprouted into a play, Scenes from Childhood. In what I found a fascinating look into his creative process, Ari takes us through every step of the journey, from the idea to opening night, peeling back the curtain as he grappled with decision after decision along the way, ultimately leading to a poignant and powerful piece of theater. So Ari, let's start kind of at the very beginning. How exactly did you decide to become a performer in the first place? Oh, I don't know if I ever decided. Um, I guess it just, you know, I came from a, a family of of performers. I mean, musicians, mostly. Uh, my my father was a concert pianist and um, and my mother was a was a musician. She's, she plays the bassoon. Um, she currently still plays the bassoon at at the age of 70. Um, but she's a pianist and she plays guitar and all kinds of winds. And she, you know, they were, they were musicians for the start. That's, that's, that's how they started. That's how they met. Um, and so my household was just constantly filled with music and we would go and, you know, my father was doing concerts all over the country and at Carnegie hall. And, you know, um, so, you know, it was always in my, in my house. And, uh, and then I, you know, so I started taking piano lessons at age five and acting lessons, um, acting lessons, not lessons, like clap, nothing serious, just like theater classes and, um, fun, you know, theater game type things. And I went to a school that was super arts focused. So there were always plays and, and, um, you know, concerts and all kinds of, you know, opportunities to, to perform. And I, took them often. Um, so that's kind of where it all started. Um, but then when I was uh, about 12 years old, I was in one of these fun little theater classes. We were doing a, a performance of, of Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, oh, that, <laughs> for, that light piece of work. For 12-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was awesome, of course, super fun. Um, sword fights and poetry. 
And um, my theater teacher, uh, who was this young, handsome New York actor who also happened to teach kids at a at an artsy school, was doing a a, a play. He was doing uh, Macbeth uh, in an off off Broadway uh, theater, and he was playing Banquo. And he said, "You know, you should come audition. We need somebody for the kids' parts." Um, so I so I went and. And uh, I was, I remember being extremely nervous and um, managed to, you know, get it together and I got the part. And I, so I did this off, off Broadway production of Macbeth with, which was like a particularly, like Macbeth is a gory play, but, and they like went for it. Like they went, they, these people were like, we're going to do Macbeth, but we're going to do it dark. And it's like, okay, that's as written. And uh, there was blood and like, babies dying and like it was intense and fight scenes and real heavy swords and it was me hanging out with a bunch of 20 and 30 year old new york city you know underpaid were we paid i don't think anyone was really paid (laughs) actors and they were just like the warmest kindest funniest people i'd ever met and there were like 20 of them and we were all hanging out and I was 12 and I was like, this, these people are incredible. And I didn't like, I, w- I didn't become a professional actor at that point. There are people who went to like, you know, child actors. I was not that. I did that play and then I, you know, had a pretty normal high school, you know, c- citizen um, uh, childhood. But I, you know, I think I got the bug there. And then after college, when it seemed like a thing that I could actually professionally do, I was like, yeah, that sounds that sounds like a reasonable thing for me to do. Now you are not only an actor, but a writer, a playwright. We're going to get into your incredible play that you wrote. Uh, what began you to, to draw you to creating your own work and not kind of just sitting back and hoping that the right role lands in your lap? Necessity, you know, um, I was never a writer. Uh, I was never a, uh, thinking about being a playwright, but I was unemployed and I wasn't getting work. And a friend of mine said, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing right now? And this is a person who makes things. And I said, I don't know, waiting for the next audition. She was like, that's dumb. I was like, what? I was like, why? What do you mean? What am I supposed to do? She's like, make something. I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I don't really know how to, how to do that. She said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, I don't, I don't have time to do that. So I am doing a lot of things. She's like, okay, do you have an hour? So this is, this is the story of how I, you know, first made a thing. And um, without that person saying you're in denial and you're fooling yourself if you think that you can't do this or you don't have time for this, uh, I don't think I would ever have done it. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I would never have done it. So... Um, you know, if we're, if we're talking, if we're talking the creative process, uh, for me, it was, um, wanting to do a thing and not wanting to be an actor waiting around for somebody else to give me something for somebody else to give me the words to say for somebody else to, you know, tell me that I can do the thing that I love to do. So instead I said, okay, I'll, I guess I can try to make something as long as somebody is there to force me to do it. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll do it. Ari, what was that, that first hour like for you trying to sit down and, and write anything. Oh man, it was awesome. It was so awesome because the sitting down in front of your computer and saying, what am I even, what is even inside my head? What's here is wildly empowering. Um, 
but you have to open the door, you know, you have to open the computer and sit for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, whatever it takes to, to say, I'm going to put words uh, onto a page and it's going to come straight from my own head. That's a totally different process than, than, um, anything that I had ever done before. And it was, and when I had finished writing this thing, I was like, you know what, this is pretty good. Like, was it great? Like, I don't know. It wasn't the thing. It wasn't any, it, it didn't really have a form. It was kind of a free associative, but I was like, but there's something in this. It came from my head and it's pretty awesome. Um, so it didn't end up being anything that I ever used ever again, but it was, it was a feeling of empowerment to say, wow, I can maybe make something. I made words, I made sentences, I made sense of a thing, and maybe it's like a little bit beautiful. So that's the hope, right? Um, and that was, a, that was an important moment for me. And then it kept happening. So after that happened, this friend of mine said, okay, send me, send me something else next week. And then she said, send me something else next week. And she, I kept sending it to her and she would give me like notes. She would say, I love this. I love how it's like this and it's like this. And, and who is that person? So this, is, this person ended up being my director um, for this play that she spurred on writing. Her name's Eugenia Manuelian. She's a kind of person who um, just need, has a compulsive need almost to, to make things. And it, I think if she can't be the person making it, she helps other people to do it and then says, hey, can I, can I, be, in the, can I be in the room where that happens? What, what kind of things so. were you turning into her every week? What were this? What was the subject matter? What was the format of it? Yeah. So originally she said, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, I've thought so abstractly about this thing about my dad. Um, it's an interesting story. I'm not really sure where I want to go with it. And she said, amazing. That story. I told her the story. She said, it sounds incredible. Make something, do something. So I started writing little bits and pieces that were sort of adjacent to a, sort of a family history or a memoir um, about my childhood and about my, about my father's life. Um, so the things I would send her at first were sort of just free pieces revolving around things about the piano, sort of just paragraphs or a page or two. And then it sort of started becoming um, scenes. I started writing little scenes. And these scenes were perhaps going to be a web series. I saw them as little vignettes. Um, I had inspiration from um, web series that were showing up now and then um, at that time. It was around, I want to say like 2010, 2011, these web series were popping up. High Maintenance was this kind of beautiful little, you know, shorts, web shorts where they would create full stories in about five minutes. And I was like, I think we could make this work. I thought, I don't know how it would work, but it just started thinking, cogs, you know, the wheels started turning. After she said, hand, hand this one in to me, hand me in this, right. this next thing next week. And so that's how that, 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 that was the form that it started to take. Well, the, the, the web series is interesting too, because it's such, a, it's such a, a simple form of storytelling because you've got only a few minutes to, to tell this story and kind of bring everything from a beginning to a climax to, to a denouement. Is, is that something that maybe helped you in your storytelling throughout as you're writing, just being able to, I guess, get to the point in some ways? Yeah, I think, well, what you realize when you start wanting to make, tell a story, uh, if you've never made one before, is that, is that 
some things come pretty easy and, and some things are a lot harder to, to make happen. Um, the easier things for me and for uh, apparently now that I, now that I understand uh, more writers processes is like dialogue, the way that people talk, the way that people, you know, th things change over the course of a conversation, actions happen, um, you know, uh, one moment to moment. Um, you can make things interesting like that, but structure, meaning beginning, middle, end, um, you know, that climax, that arc that you're trying to create, that's satisfactory, you know, at, by the end, um, is a lot harder to come by. And I tried to learn just kind of by doing it. And that's a hard process, but yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to join like Robert McKee's like screenwriting class anytime soon. Cause I just like, wasn't, that's not what I was trying to do. I was just trying to make a thing. So I, I, no, 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 no. This is all great. And actually that this brings something up for me because I, I, I want to get into the play, which I will in, in just a second, but you have been involved in some Joshua Harmon plays throughout your career. You know, you did bad Jews at, at, at the Geffen. And then of course you were just in prayer for the French Republic and incredible MTC production. Did he have any sort of influence in the way that he writes dialogue and just how, how real everything seems when you were trying to suss out what your style would be? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, Josh is, uh, I mean, one of the, you know, I, in my opinion, one of the great writers of our, of our um, current theatrical moment. Um, and he, what he does particularly well is the debate, the argument. Um, the dialogue where, you know, somebody's coming from this side, somebody's coming from the other side, and they have wildly different perspectives, and you are on both of their sides because they're both making great points and they're both um, doing it uh, really convincingly. You know, that, that played a part, certainly, in the way um, that I was thinking about dialogue. Um, you know, having, having just done Bad Jews and I was sort of writing along... Uh, at the same time, writing some scenes. Yeah, I mean, anything that you're doing, I, I guess, anything that you're doing uh, in your life um, at the moment that you're writing is it gonna, influences you, right? It's, it's going to creep right yeah. in, you know, whether yeah. you want it to or not. So, if it was to Josh's work that was going into it, if it was, um, you know, whatever thing I was watching on HBO at the time, if it was, you know, the the list of films that people told me to watch um, that were similar to the topic that I was working with, you know, everything is going to kind of seep in there. Influences can, can pretty much come from, from anywhere. And obviously, you were influenced by different things that you were watching, but in your head, you had this idea for an incredibly poignant personal play we're talking about scenes from childhood, which ran at the 14th Street Y in Manhattan about your father. You mentioned a renowned concert pianist who passed away from AIDS in 1990 at the age of 46. But when you read the New York Times obituary, it states lymphoma as the cause of death. So when did you find out that wasn't the case? And what made you want to explore the different avenues that come with that? So... I knew always that my father died of AIDS. I knew that he was sick with AIDS. And when we're talking about 1986, 87, when he first got sick, I was two or three years old. Obviously, I had no idea about any of the political, cultural, social context um, surrounding the AIDS epidemic. All I knew is that my dad was sick. And then when I was six, he died. Um, I didn't even realized that AIDS was a disease that 
you know, primarily affected the homosexual community um, until I was about 15 years old uh, in, you know, 1999. You know, how that, how I missed that is interesting. It's a particularly, you know, salient, um, you know, part of the story that I didn't, that I just kind of missed it. Um, and, and it wasn't until I was a teenager, my brother was, you know, um, also ex exploring um, the questions about, you know, our childhood that had never fully been ex explained to us. Um, and we were slowly learning that, you know, my father had a history, uh, uh, was, was living as a gay man um, before he met my mother. And, you know, the questions about the timing of everything, um, the timing of when he contracted HIV, when he first, you know, was he faithful to my mother? All kinds of uh, these questions are are packed, and uh, you know they're they're extremely loaded, and you you're trying to suss out what's going on, and um, th this this is the question of of uh, that I'm asking in the play is is um, what actually happened? What do we talk about when we when we talk about our parents lives before we were around um what kinds of things do you you know keep from your kids what kinds of things do you not and 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 um and and does any of it really matter you know um while also being in the context of this dark and tragic period in in our country and our in our city, in my city, you know, where I was born in New York City. And, um, and so those are all the things that I was. Ari, what do you mean? Explore. What do you mean by does it matter? Well, you know, um, does it matter who your parents were? Um, are you, you're a product of your parents, but who your parents were, if you don't know much about them, why do we f often feel the need to go back and, and excavate um, their pasts. Um, what does it change in your life? Does it change the way that anything um, happened in your own life? Not necessarily. Um, I think a lot of us wanna ask questions, who am I? Where do I come from? Who are these people? And I think the, it's rarely asked, do our parents' um, actions and, and, and lives before we were around actually tell us that much about who we are? I think sometimes they do, but I think sometimes that that's maybe overemphasized when we're talking about our identities and what's who we are sure yeah that no that that absolutely makes a, a lot of sense uh, they have an impact of course but how much of an impact especially when you become an adult right you make your own decisions you go on your own paths you make your own choices who you're going to date who you're going to marry you have kids uh what your actual interests are when you get away from you know being under your parents' roof. Uh, I think all of that is really interesting to examine. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We're all, a, we're all just like a mix of what we remember and whatever's stuck in our subconscious, right? Perhaps we don't really need to go back and check it out. It might be an unpopular opinion. And I'm not saying that I'm like that. Obviously, <laughs> I, I tried really hard to go back. I mean, I went back, man. I went into my father's diaries. I talked to his old friends. I was trying to figure out everything about him. But while I was doing it, I was asking, like, why, why am I doing this? Like, what, <laughs> what is act what's actually important about this? And, that, and that's an important question, I think. What is important about this? Why does this matter to me? 
I don't know if I ever really figured it out. But what I, what I what I did figure out was that my father had certain struggles that I, I now understand. And I, I just think that it's a beautiful story and it's a sad story, but it's also a story about, um, about so many people um, that also were living the exact, uh, not the exact same life, a very, very similar yeah. life. I mean, I, what I realized was that I went to school with at least three other people whose fathers were in heterosexual marriages with children, obviously, and they were living uh, lives as gay men as well and died of AIDS. And I went to school with them for like 10 years, and I didn't know until I was in my mid-20s that they were right next to me, that their fathers died while I was standing next to them in class, and I, it was never talked about. But this is our childhoods. You know, these are, th this is what we grew up with. And um, the perspective of the, of the child of a parent who died of AIDS is only now starting to become in the spotlight. Right. There are, there are more organizations that are also doing this. The Recollectors is the, is the one that I point to the most. They, they're just a sort of a community of people much like myself whose parents died of AIDS. And they all have stories. And a lot of them are sadly you know, similar. I'm pretty sure when I went to see the play that they did a, a talk back afterward, didn't they? And one of them. Yeah. Did you, you, you came to that? Did you come to that show? Where mm -hmm. was the talk back afterwards. Yeah, we, that's right. The recollectors came and one of the, uh, my classmates whose father also died, whose father actually happened. I only found out that, that her father died of AIDS because he was one of the central characters in the documentary, how to survive a plague, which was about the AIDS epidemic. And I saw, his name and I saw little baby Sarah there and I was like, that's, I know who that is. I wow. went to school with her. Um, so she spoke on this, at this talk back after the play and her family came and yeah, it's this, it's this way that we heal. It's this way that we come to understand what happened to us, you know, in the moment when we're going through our trauma, there's no way to unpack or process these things. I mean, it's sad that it had to happen a full generation after um, but I think the fact that it's happening a little bit more now is, is a good thing. How difficult a decision though, was it for you, um, and your family to tell such a, a personal story and to, and to put it out there in, in public where you've got audiences coming in every night to experience this? Yeah, there were moments I would say when I was like, whoa, I'm kind of, I mean, I, in a way outed my father, um, in a way that he never wanted to be outed his whole you know uh, something that drove him and all of many of his actions was that people did not find this out um he didn't want people to know that's a major line and in, in the play he, he didn't want anyone to know and I, here i am putting it on stage in his old neighborhood you know in the east village where we lived so it was a question it was a question i asked many times writing it and um, I just fell on the side of, this is my ode. This is my way of showing him, if he's watching, that I don't blame him. I don't think he did anything wrong. I think he was stuck in a really messed up world. And he had a pretty crappy hand um, handed to him in the way where he was 
where he was raised, how he was or was not accepted, how he had to get by being the person that he was. And I think he did a pretty good job of it. And the play is my way of setting his soul free. And your dad was um, originally from Israel as well, right? So there, there's different cultures that are that are mixing in there, and it all seems to be very tangled and, and complicated just in, in that sense as well. Yeah, it's intricate. I mean, it's as intricate as anybody, you know, as, as any life is. Um, but yeah, my father's was particularly, uh, he grew up in a very religious household, a religious Jewish household. In a in a in a burgeoning state of Israel, which uh, you know I think was probably a really intense place to grow, grow up, considering <laughs> the the people who were there, the people who were already there before they got there, um, where these people were immigra- emigrating from. Um, obviously, their families, you know, were still in Eastern Europe and were massacred. And you know, this is a this is a, a very particular place to grow up. And then. If you're not like everyone else, if you're a gay kid growing up in, in that world um, where there was not the vocabulary or the understanding to talk about, you know, what that meant, you know, it, it's a sadly um, many oft told story um, where that person has to leave their home, leave their family and try to figure out where they can feel safe. And that's what my father did. He left Israel, he left Jerusalem, he came to New York City. It was the 60s and 70s and you know, he did what he did what he wanted to do and what he had to do um to figure out you know, how to live. Yeah. And, so, and that's and that's what he did. And then he met my mother and they fell in love and they had a family and you know, it's it's a it's a wild story, but it's a story again, it's a story of a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there there's no doubt my biggest question, I think a lot of people listening as as they try to figure out, you know, the, the different sides of this, do you tell this story if this isn't what he wanted or is what is the opinion of your mother in all of this? Yeah, well, she's a central character in the play and she saw the play um, and that was really intense, um, but she she gave it her blessing, you know, she she didn't feel, you know. <laughs> The things that she she had a harder time with were just when I, you know, talk about the mundane um, things that she that annoy me about her, about her, you know, her strange alternative medicine things that she throws a lot of money at. You know, it's like little things that she does that I'm just like, this makes no logical sense. It's the comedic relief. The comic relief of the play is, you know, how I give my mom you know, grief about the things that she does. And she, the things she said after the play was like, you know that Dr. Klein is actually a master at what he does. I'm like, I'm not going to talk about this with you right now. We just, <laughs> we just did, the, we just talked about, you know. We just buried our, our family's soul in front of this <laughs> yeah. whole audience. Exactly. So no, she, she gave her blessing. I mean, yes, I, you know, it was really intense. My brother also played a role in the play and he came and saw it and, you know, yeah, everybody's sobbing their eyes out all over the floor. It's a very intense piece, um, but not. It didn't. It didn't seem to be received with any sort of, um, you know, bitterness or resentment. It seemed to be received in a way that I was hoping, which was that I, you know, these characters were depicted honestly and with love. 
I want to ask you about uh, some of the choices that were made during the play in a little bit, but just going from this idea and, and you start writing and then you put some scenes together and then eventually, you know, it becomes one actual contained work. What was that whole whole process like for you? And I know you worked um, you worked with uh, is it is it pronounced Laba the the laboratory for for Jewish culture to try to like get this off of the ground. How do you make something from an idea to a production? Yeah, um, so I applied to this fellowship at Laba, which was just a further way to you know give myself some structure for the process of of making this thing and. And basically all that was, was giving me a deadline, you know, it was giving me some deadlines to show what I am currently working on. So you had a couple of scenes, maybe, you know, seven or eight scenes that I compiled into a sort of play. I kind of just cobbled it together. We did a little reading of it. And then I said, I need a little bit more structure. I need to run this by a few more people. I need to workshop this. So yeah, I applied to this fellowship and it was, it, it was just a, 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 a they provided a theater, they provided a, a group of artists, and we did a presentation, you know, just little things that help you to say, this is a serious thing that I'm doing. This is not just, you know, whenever I feel like doing it, this is a thing that I'm actually, I'm going to be a playwright now. I'm going to actually do the things necessary to, to finalize and make this thing that I can show people. And that's a, it's a different thing than kind of writing for yourself, you know, sort of journaling, you know, or writing a script and putting it in the desk drawer. No, this is a thing that I, that I was going to have to do because I signed up for it. And I think that's maybe the most important part of any of these processes, which is to say, I'm, I'm going to set a deadline. I'm, I have to do this. So I'm going to make it as good as I can. Otherwise, you don't really have to make something good if you're not going to show it to anybody. What do you have to do? You're just writing. It's sort of self-indulgent, you know? So uh, that fellowship allowed me to do a presentation then the theater said we want to give it a fuller production so that's what they did that was about a year later um i mean the theater was wonderful but they you know they didn't have you know a full marketing team they didn't have you know a casting director you know so i was i was i was running auditions i was like having you know i was <laughs> teaching piano lessons. I was uh, was like a one man band for you. pretty. Yeah. I mean, well, it wasn't, it was two, I would say much more two with my director, Eugenia. Um, we were really making so much of it happen, just the two of us. And, and it was a very interesting process. And, um, unfortunately my second child was born in the middle of it, um, which was not what I intended. Unfortunate for the timing, um, not not for the, not for what happened, of course. Never again. Will I say the words, unfortunately, my child was born. (laughs) was probably a mistake and if That's you edit right. that out that would be awesome <laughs> but yeah the timing was terrible i mean my wife really needed a a really nice um apology but she's obviously incredible and supported my process and said that you know i should do it and so we did it and it was harder than we both thought it might be um but we did it and we got it in there and um a lot of people came to see it you know we sold a lot of tickets uh and it was still this weird like burgeoning piece that has now changed already you know making theater is <laughs> as you, as you learn when you try to do it yourself really hard like it's really you know it's a it's like it's like making anything good. It doesn't happen often. I mean, you know, you go to a play, like, how often is it, like, really good? It's generally, like, fine or bad. Um, sometimes it's transcendent. 
and you're just trying to make a thing that's transcendent. And when it is, it's there's nothing greater than it. I mean, I truly believe that if there's a transcendent play and you're in a room watching it with a bunch of people and the actors are there experiencing it with you, I don't think there's anything... Uh, it's, it's the pinnacle of, of artistry and, you know, a transcendent experience. You use the VHS cameras kind of a, a focal point for your show throughout with you know, projections of actually what was going on on stage, which I thought was so cool. Is, is that your idea? Where did that come from? When I see VHS, and I think it's my entire generation that when we see VHS, it does something to us. We say, oh, man. Remember that? Oh man, look at that carpet, that wall-to-wall carpeting. You know, it's like it when you see VHS, it's like we're immediately transported. I mean, at least my family. You know, when, this was a time when, in the '80s, all of a sudden, a, a camera, a video camera, was in everybody's homes, and uh, people have stacks of these things that were just documentations of slices of life. I mean, they're not the you know 30-second videos that we all take on our phones now of our kids. I say our. Um, but I mean mine, um, and I try to do longer videos to sort of recreate, but we can do it at any point. We don't need to charge it. We don't need to plug it in. We don't need to have it at home. We, you know, we bring can it do... for the special occasion, you know, like yeah, the, the exactly. first birthday party. You can, you could literally do it while your kid is eating dinner. Who knows how we're going to look back on the millions of home videos we have now. But what I know is that there are about 15 to 20 VHS tapes that encapsulate my entire childhood and so many other kids of my generation. And so, you know, when I started looking at these, I was like, this has to play a part at some in some way, because watching these videos is the process of exploring my past. Watching these videos is the process of figuring out who my father was. And if that's what the play is about, maybe I can get him in there. So I went on eBay and I found a VHS camcorder and I figured out, oh, this was the hardest part of doing this whole play, how to live feed a VHS camcorder through a projector in a theater so that you can see what the camera is seeing on a screen behind the actors. And when I just thought of that moment, I was like, whoa, the possibilities for this are really interesting. There's a lot of possibilities here. You can witness history happening, and you can also witness what gets remembered and what doesn't. And that seemed so thematically rich that I was like, we got to just explore this more. The other thing was that my father was always the one taping so he was often never on camera, but he also was totally inept at the technology. He never knew if it was on or off. And that was so thematically rich. What things get remembered was just almost random. I mean, he thought that it was off and it was on all the time, which means (laughs) the things that he wanted people to see might not have been seen and the things he didn't want people to see might have been seen. And so that so many of those <laughs> those things made it into the play because I just thought, you know, you're looking for things that, you know, are are consistent with a the theme and that just seemed uh to be a really apt metaphor and also just like a practical um, application of of exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, and I know when when I went and saw it and you even just look at the camcorder and you're like, "Oh man, wow." 
You know, just yeah, like, like just just bringing it up, just putting it out there. Nothing even needed to be filmed. Honestly, you just look at it, and it it does it triggers that kind of this nostalgia and that emotion. It's like seeing a Super Nintendo or something. You're <laughs> exactly. just like, oh my god, the memories. Like so many. Remember when we brought it to? You know, it's just like, uh, yes, yeah. yes. Remember the first things. night we got Nintendo sixty four, and oh, you know. On stayed up all night on a school night playing it and didn't go to sleep. These are the things we remember. You know, these are the, these are the things that mark your childhood. And yeah, the camcorder is one of those, you know, um, certain stylistic elements that, you know, the, the certain costumes or, or again, like wall to wall carpeting. Our set did not have the budget for wall to wall carpeting, but if I were to do it at a place that had a little bit more money, I think I would have to like, get that sort of like salmon colored, but like, it's like so dirty. It's gotta be faded for sure. Oh, straight faded salmon and tan and maybe like a, like just like a, like a brown. I don't know why everything was colored that way, but (laughs) those are the tones like, oh, and also the VHS coloring is always just so like ultra saturated and yellow. And all of those things just are, are things that transport you back to the eighties and 90s and that's what you know that's what I was really it was really important for me to do that when I was thinking of making it a web series like that was going to be a huge part of it and a lot of people came to the play who make things on camera and they were like this is a film and I was like oh shit (laughs) now now is that what it's what's going to happen so maybe it will you know, we'll see. Yeah, what are the plans for Scenes from Childhood? Because it's been a couple of years now since it was on stage, and it was well-received, and everybody that I know that saw it absolutely loved it. What's what's happening? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It, it might be time for a couple of rewrites and keeping it a play. It might be time for, you know, blowing it up and turning it into a, a feature. I'm not sure whether we focus more on, you know, uh, my father's story, we focus more on my story. Things are up in the air. We will see what happens. We need a little bit less COVID in our lives and a little bit more childcare. And then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Although I will say, I didn't get any of this stuff off the ground until my son was born. And I think that while I could never have fathomed that I would have the time or the wherewithal or the energy to do something like that, um, I do believe that it was only because I had even less time and more responsibilities that I was able to be efficient enough and focused enough to do these things. When I had hours and hours to languish through the day, before I was a parent, I did not use those hours wisely. And it was only after I had, oh, I have two hours today to do anything that's not all the other things I have to do. I was like laser focused. Let's write. Let's do something. Let's call the direct. Let's talk. Let's, you know, let's make these things happen. Let's apply to the fellowship. Let's, you know, set up the auditions. Let's do all these things. And then exhausted at the end of the day, I got those things done. But you probably felt pretty good too. I mean, it felt better than I ever felt. And it was also a thing that I, you know, could say that I was super proud of and could, you know, show my kids someday that I did. And I think that that's going to be a driver of all of my, (laughs) it has been a driver of all of my endeavors since they've been born. So go have children and, uh, 
and then you can go make something. Yeah, and don't don't have any excuses either, I guess. So what's next? Just waiting around for the next audition. No, I mean, I, you know, there are a couple irons in the fire. We'll see what happens with these, you know, other projects that may or may not be happening. But opening up the computer, opening up the, the screenplay and, and working on it again. From this entire experience, from the beginning to end of developing the idea to sitting down and writing it, to putting it on stage, to now being finished with it, at least in its first run, its first iteration, and now trying to figure out what's next with it. What would you say you've actually learned the most? What has been the most interesting piece that you could take from this? The hardest part is opening up the computer. The hardest part is the sitting down. The rest of it will flow. And that part is fun. The hardest part is doing the thing. And then once you're there, it gets better and better. But the thinking about it and not doing it is the worst part. All the rest of it is great. It's hard. It's exhausting. It's, you get stuck. You get into puzzles. You have to figure it out. But the sitting down and saying, I'm going to do this, I don't think anyone's figured out how to do it right. And, and, you learn, and you learn that when you talk to other people who, are, who have done it and who are the best at doing it, they all say that same thing. I, I hate writing. But what they mean is I hate thinking about the fact that I have to write and I haven't done it yet. I think that's real. And you want to make a thing, you got to figure out how to sit down. Ari, thank you so much for doing this. This was uh, this is so much fun and, and honestly so insightful. I think a lot of people are going to take away plenty from how you were able to go about writing this to, to putting it on stage to all the takeaways from it. This was awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, what a pleasure. And, and thank you for your kindness. I appreciate it. Creative License is created, hosted, podcasted, podcasted, obviously. Let's try that again. Creative License is created, hosted, produced, and edited by Alex Perlman with inspiration and guidance from Hannah Rosenthal. Graphic design by Carrie Lindgren. Our thanks once again to Ari Brand for lending his insight and experiences this week. Follow Ari on Instagram at Ari Brand. You can find Creative License on Twitter at CLPod and follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at AR Perlman. Shoot me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.